This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steverosephd.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Welcome to the Concepts Podcast. Welcome. Today, we're talking about a everyday concept, not the highfalutin kind of garbage that we normally talk about. Instead, it's going to be something a little more mundane. Steve, what is it? None of that trash. <laughs> Today, we're talking about laziness. Yeah. <laughs> Something I think we all feel guilty of. Real lowbrow concept today. You know, and one that I think is overused. And so I guess what we're going to do is pull it apart and look at, is this something that is even useful to say? Is laziness really your problem or is it something different? Does laziness exist? I mean, these are the kind of themes I want to kind of work through here. But, you know, as per usual... We're going to define it. Let's start with the definition. So, again, to our old trusty Wikipedia, laziness, also known as indolence, <laughs> is disinclination to activity or exertion despite having the ability to act or to exert oneself. So it's pretty much saying you're able to act, but you don't. It is often used as a pejorative. Terms for a person seen to be lazy also include couch potato, slacker, bludger. Hmm, never heard that one. It's related to the concept of sloth. And actually, particularly in Christian liturgy, it's a sin, one of the deadly sins. <laughs> liturgy is just like lacking energy, but sloth, yeah, is, is one of the seven deadly sins. Christian liturgy. Yeah, I was wondering if that came from the Protestant work ethic, because for them, like, to work is to do God's work, I guess. When did the seven deadly sins actually become a thing? Because I don't think Jesus ever talked no. about this stuff, so it wasn't back that old. It's definitely after the establishment of the church, I believe, and there's like 13 of them actually because they've shifted over time to reflect the times. So it's not actually a static thing, which you can see on their Wikipedia page there. Okay, just, just to be clear, we don't get all of our information from Wikipedia. It's just the most concise usually. We just start there and then we kind of add in our research and conversation. But it's nice to start on a common ground that everyone can get behind. So acedia is another one that came up. This is just a really tangent for going on here, but acedia is the neglect to take care of something that one should do. And then vainglory, so vanity, which, is that not one of the current ones? Lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. So pride and Vanity seems similar, but I guess they're not quite the same. So I guess the seven deadly sins come from a pre-Christian Western culture, particularly the Greek and Romans. Interesting. So it's been around for a while. Yeah, but back back to laziness. <laughs> so back to laziness. So we got a pretty succinct definition of you could do something, but you don't do it. And then someone calls you lazy for it. Working definition, sure. But I would argue that I guess the definition of laziness Laziness is a lazy concept because it's just a large blanket you throw onto something of all these other potential motives that could be happening, and it just calls it one thing. It's like moralizing people who exert bad behavior and just saying, oh, that person's just a loser. And I remember we talked about the concept of loser in an earlier episode. It's just a big umbrella category of just this is what you are, and it just kind of dismisses the person as this kind of label and doesn't actually look at what's going on. And I 
I think laziness is a lazy concept because it doesn't take into consideration so many other potential reasons why someone might not do something when they can do the thing. Yeah, I'm not sure if I agree that it's not a thing at all, but I think you're right that largely it is laziness of the person to, well, one, like everyone seems to think that whatever they do and whatever works for them, even if they didn't put any effort in, sometimes people are doing well. This is a survivorship bias. We've done an episode on that as well. But like, say someone has great teeth and they've always just like brushed it once a day, for example, and they don't floss and they don't pay attention to anything else. And then they go preaching about how all you need is just to brush your teeth once a day. And that's all you need to get good teeth. But it's mostly genes carrying it. And the reason I'm talking about this is because often if anybody deviates from them and doesn't get the same or better results, (laughs) then they must be doing something wrong. And I'm thinking about in particular, generally, I need eight or nine hours of sleep, eight hours of sleep. I usually feel a little bit tired. Nine hours is like perfect. And so when I tell older people this in the past, who, as you get older, people have more sleep problems. It's not that they need less sleep. It's that they end up having more sleep issues and thinking that's fine. And a lot of people are just so sleep deprived that they think that that's just the norm. We've talked about that before in the past as well. But I told him I needed eight or nine hours and he just said, you're just lazy. And it's like, Ooh. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. something I can't control. Like I, I wake up, I'm tired still. That means I'm lazy. Yeah. Yeah. You're not trying hard enough in life. Yeah. Clearly. I mean, even if I'm working every waking hour, that extra hour I slept means I must be a lazy person. You must be a lazy person. There's a real moralizing tone to laziness. It's really in the category of internalized capitalism, bad behavior. Well, I think that's part of what I wanted to talk about later on was how this is a word that's used to kind of make people produce more. And I guess you can see it start to be used more with the development of modern society where people are expected to work longer hours and kind of be wage slaves. Sacrifice more for the job. Wage slaves. Wage slaves. Indentured servants (laughs) is the preferred term. I don't actually know what it is. (laughs) I'm using kind of Karl Marx language. Uh, So laziness, is it a thing? Is it not a thing? You think it can be a thing. And what what cases do you think laziness could be an actual thing? Okay, well, I'm going to take it into a little bit more of an academic angle. I'm going to talk about standard distributions. So the standard distribution is in psychology. That's where most of these traits fall. So if you picture a bell curve where the peak is at 50, it's symmetrical and it like tapers off very quickly and ends up shaping like a big old bell. That's typically how these things distribute themselves. So people in this area, I would say somebody who is, if we look at big five, there's industriousness. I would say it's somebody who falls on the outlier low end of the bell curve for industriousness. Industriousness being, I mean, it's not necessarily the ability to produce. It's the drive, I think, to produce. Like if you sit around doing nothing all day, then will you feel okay or you feel like you didn't do anything? And if you feel like you didn't do anything, then that's usually industriousness. And as some psychologists have said, if you take somebody high in industriousness and you give them out of work, you put them out in like the forest. It's not that they'll do nothing like a lot of people imagine. They'll be chopping wood all day. They'll be like doing whatever work needs to be done all day as productive as possible. So I'm talking about the opposite of that. Somebody who even given all the time in the world will not do anything. They might not even feed themselves because they're so slovenly. Slovenly or they just depress. That is a question. That is a good question, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm also thinking about, I guess for some reason I'm thinking of Red Dead Redemption which is like set back in late 1800s Wild West time and there are people that just kind of hang about and do nothing but drink and womanize and gamble and then like they don't actually do anything that productive they'll steal stuff I guess so I mean like these people do exist but then I guess yeah the question is is there a justifiable reason for it it's hard to say there's a lot of complications in it I have come around to thinking that it can exist like I was of the opinion maybe before that laziness doesn't exist at all but like for example like if there's a candy wrapper on your kitchen floor and you have nothing else to really do and you're just kind of hanging out and you look at it you're like huh 
don't feel like picking it up. I don't feel like it. You just walk past it and you leave the candy wrapper. You know, maybe that's a little bit of laziness. Yeah. I guess I'll flip it on its head. I think that the amount of people that are truly lazy and not bogged down with mental health issues and other things, I think it can exist in isolation of these other things, a perfectly healthy, happy person who just doesn't do anything. And that honestly, what's wrong with that exactly? If they're making enough to support themselves, supposing, and they choose to live that way, then why do we care exactly? Like, sure, they'll be just a pure consumer. But for those of us who are not doing that, who like to make stuff, we need consumers to buy our stuff. So it's like the whole UBI argument, universal basic income. If everyone doesn't have to work, then nobody would work, they say. And I don't think that's true because people would be making pies and other just goods that they like. And then you need people to be buying that still. So if we have a society of people who are low in industriousness, meaning they're not bothered by walking past the candy wrapper, then we should just let them live. <laughs> like let them not do things. Let them hang out in the forest and not be chopping wood. <laughs> you know, let them be. But also arguably they're not doing work in the traditional sense, like cleaning and stuff. But these people are probably doing something that could be construed as work, like socializing all the time. They can be a connector. Some of the most powerful people are just people that are really good at connecting with other people. So if they do no work, but they walk around all the time telling jokes and entertaining people and just hanging out, drinking even, then those people could still be a great asset to other people, right? They're an entertainer. Yeah. You're talking about like a bard. I guess bards actually perform, but I guess that kind of archetype. I'm thinking even just like vagrants or whatever, or maybe like, I guess I think it's Malcolm Gladwell. I don't think it's Mavens. I kept using that wrong, I think, but it's something in tipping point where he categorizes the people that are connectors, I guess. Right. Connectors. And so this falls outside of the capitalistic kind of modern definition of work. And I guess it could be perceived as laziness, this person who just socializes, like being a socialite, really. But maybe it's not necessarily laziness. It's just another version of an asset. And I guess we do idealize this type of person already. You can look at the Kardashians and stuff. Like they're kind of idealized as socialites. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that those people do nothing. They seem actually quite active to appear like they're doing nothing. They put on a good show that, that looks like they're just hanging out all the time. But this is also something we only label at people who are not wealthy. If you're the idle rich, you're perfectly fine. Some people will condemn you, but widely not. If you're poor and doing nothing, yeah, you're bad, moralized. Yeah. But if you're rich and you just don't have to do nothing and do anything, Great. So if you're making like $10,000 a year and doing nothing, people are going to call you lazy. Yeah. I guess, again, it also depends on what we define as work. Because like stay-at-home spouses, man or woman, if they don't have kids, if they're just taking, just quote unquote, taking care of the house, is that laziness? Because they're not being economically productive as we currently define it. Some people might say so. I mean, it seems it depends on which gender, honestly, because I've heard, I don't remember if studies are just hearsay, so don't quote me on this, but basically perceiving a stay-at-home wife who doesn't have a kid would be more acceptable than a stay-at-home husband. And the reports of people talking about that, the stay-at-home husband is seen as taking advantage of her, a no good, like lazy bum that needs to be kicked to the curb. Right. And even if they do have kids, the stay at home husband with kids has somewhat of a... They actually get a prestige to that. <laughs> it seems weirdly. I mean, it depends on the circle. I think more conservative areas kind of view them as like still similar bad. Like laziness. Yeah. yeah. But then the progressives... Right, he doesn't want to work. What's he doing? Yeah. But then the progressives, I think, see it as like, wow, he really cares about his kid. He's taking like an active role. Right. There is a virtue in that on the left for sure. And on the right... It's the opposite, yeah. Yeah, and I think I've heard, I mean, again, these are just like hearsay stories of just people on the internet randomly maybe lying. But there was one saying like a guy was, I think he was more left politically and he was taking care of his wife. She was a stay-at-home mother and people were largely criticizing her to his face 
And the only people that were like either indifferent or like, oh, good job, were conservative old men being like, oh, it's great to be able to be a breadwinner for your family. So interesting how these perspectives probably vary quite widely, honestly, and now I'm thinking about it. Right, right. Yeah. And so the definition changes depending on who you're talking to. I would still argue, though, that a small chunk of human behavior might actually just fall into this laziness category. And most of it is something else. So laziness is not actually your problem. And maybe we can go through a list of these things that have compiled that people call is it laziness or is it something else right it's also very related to motivational interviewing i think because we've talked about this just before we started recording writer's block writer's block is something i never knew about until (laughs) i experienced it during the pandemic when i was just like very anxious about the situation and just what i was going to do how i was going to make enough money and despite writing being the thing to make money it was like uh i know i have to do this thing but i kept putting off doing it and i guess also the concern of like can i do it again kind of thing yeah so when you talk about writer's block you open up the computer the document, the blank screen, the what's it called? The not the cursor, but the ticky has a tick, it's just flashing and it's just taunting you, like, yeah, type something. That's some people's experience. I think my problem was just sitting down. We talked about this before, where I was like, I can sit down and the words will just flow out of me. And usually when I'm doing it, I'm you can't sit down. Yeah, it's more just because I know when I sit down, I'm gonna be locked there. It's like I have to sit down and write a lot. And so I'd avoid starting because I couldn't get up again after I started. Oh, because it's like feeling like you're gonna be trapped. Yeah. Oh, your experience is so different than mine. <laughs> Talk about your experience. Oh, I get to sit down and be locked in. This is gonna be nice. And then I stare at the blank screens like oh. I don't know what to write. I don't know anything. I've forgotten everything. I've written everything that I've already known. I have nothing more to say. Well, I'm good for nothing now. Like, mine's more of like, I forget everything I know. And I'm like, well, I've already written everything I know. And I can't think of anything new. So we should work together because I'm really good at coming up with like skeletons of lists of what to talk about. And I don't want to fill them out. (laughs) You want somebody to kick you to get started with that list. I lose a sense of knowing anything. It's like sitting down before an exam and your mind goes blank. And this is why structuring out my articles when the ideas come to me in drafts form allows me to go back and be like, oh yeah, skeleton. Yeah, so I have that and I've worked around it. But just starting with a blank page, that's my experience. And and so I'm sitting there looking, staring blankly at a screen or you're just like kind of pacing around, not sitting down. And people can perceive this as like, okay, these people are lazy. They're not doing the work. Well, I mean, I'm actually procrastinating using like doing what I call productive procrastination, doing dishes and laundry and otherwise cleaning up. And and so some people would say procrastination is laziness. I'd argue it's not. I think procrastination is more about fear. And a lot of the research is showing that, that people who procrastinate have a strong association between their self-worth and how much they do. Mm. And so it's a form of perfectionism that if they start and it's not good enough or not perfect enough, it's a perfectionism, then it's going to reflect poorly on them. They're going to let themselves down. And so there's more of a fear response involved there. And so when you say lazy as in, oh, that person's just making a bad moral decision for not doing the work, there's actually a complex psychology behind it, the scenes that's actually operating. It seems like there would be a niche there business-wise for somebody to make a kind of clinic that's for catered specifically to companies gauged around largely motivational interviewing and act therapy. Sorry, I guess 
acceptance and commitment therapy and is there on call for workers in offices or businesses to call them to help them get in the right mind space to work. Cause like, Oh, I'm dealing with all these things. And so you could, it seems like there'd be some good money in that. Cause companies like you're going to provide a service that helps us earn more money and get more from our employees. That seems like something that people would be very willing to shell out for. Well, thanks for the business idea. You're welcome. We'll consider it. Yeah. People will partner together. So <laughs> these are particularly high performers. This happens for like procrastination usually happens for people who are high in industriousness or high neuroticism. You think? Yeah. Propensity to negative emotion, but they really want to do well. And you can see this in like high performing companies like Google or something, for example, like maybe they are actually high performers who aren't able to use that potential because there's a lot of mental blocks. Like what if I'm an imposter? What if I'm not good enough? And it's easier to not start the hard thing and focus on the easier things than to risk feeling like a failure. Referencing the book now called Eat That Frog, which is about productive ways to get started. And he has a lot of little tips and tricks in there to to get better. I do wonder though, because part of this, it's this kind of paradox of work right now where it's like, if you are able to do all of your work in say two hours of your eight hour shift and it comes out that you can do it all in two hours, then you will be given four times as much work because they want you to work at maximum capacity. But this is also ignoring the fact that people wear down. People can work in fits and bursts. People can be extremely productive for like maybe two hours and get more done than most people in an eight hour day. And it should just be more, in my reckoning, it should be more milestone based per day. So I think if you were to do that thing of like coaching people to work, then maybe part of the work day is just them psyching themselves up to getting to the actual work because it's this thing that's a big deal to them maybe. Oh, for sure. It's working through unhelpful thought patterns, but also there's a behavioral component of doing something else. Like if some people say if they go do an exercise or go for a walk, then it allows them to then be able to work. The exercise and the walk are not part of the job, but are just as important to doing the job as anything else in the job. Yeah, getting in the right mind space and being able to... Actually, that's in the book. John Waitzkin wrote it I think it's called The Art of Learning, I think it is. He's the guy that Finding Bobby Fischer, whatever that movie was about a chess prodigy, it's about him. He's done a bunch of stuff, but he wrote a book on how to get into a very productive mindset. And for him, I think it was you do the relaxation things and you then listen to music that normally psychs you up. And then the music eventually becomes the trigger to get you in that state. I can't remember exactly. It's in that book. I'll have to look it up and reference it. But it was a very interesting way where you you build in triggers in your mind to make it so you can get into a productive state right away. All right. Creating your own helpful triggers by associating the song with productivity. Okay. Got it. Nice. Nice. And so laziness, could be actually procrastination, which is actually a kind of fear. The next thing that people often think is laziness, probably even more often than this one, is people who are actually suffering from depression and they may not even know it. Like The person may not know it, but even if they do know it, do other people necessarily know it or believe it if they do know it? Because depression is exactly this. It, it keeps you from doing things. And some would argue things that you could otherwise do, I guess physically, you could fully capable to get up and leave the house and go for a walk. But mentally, you're not capable of doing it. But some people will say, well, that's not an excuse. Just change your state and be happy. Yeah, just choose to be happy. Yeah, they've never had a low period in their lives. Like it's really easy to say that to somebody, especially it's like a rich person saying to a poor person, "Well, just make more money." Then it's like, "Oh, just that, huh?" Oh, really? It's quite the solution you've given me here. Thank you. I never thought of that before. Yeah. So just pick yourself up and be happy. And you're lazy if you don't do it. Yeah, stop ruminating. <laughs> Using a psychological term there, yeah. But it's a very real thing that people who are suffering, especially major depression, and 
and really just can't get out of bed. It looks to the outside observer like, what's going on here? It's like a perfectly physically capable person. Maybe they have a good stable situation. They have a good job, a house, a family. And from the outside, people are like, what's wrong? They must be lazy. But there's a lot often going on under the surface that might be affecting their mood. Cognitive distortions such as, uh, you know, blaming oneself for things that are not their responsibility, feeling bad about oneself, having too high of expectations for oneself and then not being able to meet that expectation and then it affecting their self-esteem in kind of a learned helplessness fashion, past traumas. So things can look good on the outside, but maybe they actually legitimately experienced a past trauma that was never really resolved and it starts to kind of play into their mind. They're in this fight or flight mode that just results in just exhaustion and now they just can't get out of bed. I mean, there's so many reasons why someone would not do something. And I mean, depression and anxiety has gone up like crazy. And you can argue that part of it's to do with diagnosis because we're diagnosing it a lot more. People are more aware of it. In the past, they would have just been, as we're talking about, labeled as lazy. But to me, it's like, it's partially the increase in diagnosis, but it also appears to be just the fact that society is crushing many of us mentally and that it's really trying to make a system and force humanity to conform to it as opposed to conforming to how humanity's nature actually is. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So we're trying to force ourselves to fit in this box and be like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I just sit still in a box for eight hours a day and just deal with it? Like, obviously there's something wrong with me. I got to take these pills to make it so I'm okay. Like that's obviously a bad idea. Like we were not built to sit in artificial lighting in the same position for that long. In fact, I think sitting for eight hours a day is regardless of your activity outside of those eight hours is correlated with an increase in death from all causes. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I love that mentality. Reminds me of Eric Fromm's book, The Sane Society. And he talks about how individuals are blamed for societal problems. The word laziness is blaming the individual morally for a problem that is structural, meaning you force a whole society to live in, in this kind of box-like state. You work in this way, you sit in traffic, eat unhealthy food. And have no downtime to see your family and friends. And by the way, now you won't be able to afford any of it. Yeah. But just keep doing more. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then you're so in debt that you have to just keep doing all this over and over again. Like the U.S., that's like what it sounds like you're recollecting, like what's going on there, especially those who are saddled with student debt. It's just insane. Like, do you think that this is going to make people productive constantly? Like, honestly, is this going to make people continue to snap in the worst of ways, clearly? And it's got to be fixed. Something's got to give. Yeah. Yeah. Blaming individuals for societal ills is just a whole thing. And that's what, I mean, my sociological background, so much of that in, in sociology, particularly the more of the left wing critical theory perspectives. What sociology is right wing? <laughs> Not much, actually. Surprisingly, most academic disciplines don't veer too far right, except for maybe, I guess, economics. Right. Yeah, I think it's this critical theory stuff is oversimplified and it's not really understood on a general societal level, particularly by, I guess, the, the, the far right these days. And the mainstream media, yeah. Poo poo all over it. <laughs> yeah, all that critical race theory, which is just based off of critical theory and it's just thinking critically about these areas. It's like just being like, is it different to be somebody of color? It's like, yes, it seems like it is a different experience in Western society. And like that would be, I guess, the very, very rudimentary level of considering critical race theory. Like, how is it different? In what ways? Why? Like these questions are pretty plain and fairly obvious. 
But for some reason, they're saying they're going to brainwash everybody. I just saw a headline. Marjorie Taylor Greene said that straight people are going to go extinct. And it's like, what? It's obvious nonsense. It's just like, I mean, it's getting the very effect of me saying it right now. Like it's getting us to talk about it. But it's just so outrageous and stupid that they've just deviated from any sense of reality. Yeah. And so how does this relate to Ubuntu before? We're talking about society's ills, blaming it, moralizing the individual. Yeah. Moralizing the individual. And there's a quote from Eric Fromm in his book, The Sane Society. I want to read this. It's one of my favorites. It says, mental health cannot be defined in terms of the adjustment of the individual to his society. But on the other hand, it must be defined in terms of the society to the needs of man. Kind of exactly what you said (laughs) before. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Of its role in uh, furthering or hindering the development of mental health. So whether or not the individual is healthy is primarily not an individual matter, but depends on the structure of his society. Two things come to mind when you're saying that. One is the quote that is attributed to Freud, which is, before you diagnose yourself with depression or before you get diagnosed with depression, make sure you're not surrounded by jerks, essentially. And the other one is Sam Harris goes a little bit further in this point, saying that morality should also be included in that. So like society, you shouldn't have to be like the ubermensch, this like superhuman person just to be a moral person. It should be the default based on how the system is operating. So like companies that like to say they're like going out of their way with corporate social responsibility stuff, they're just doing all these big things and they're trying to be like, look how great we are. That should not be applauded that should be the norm. They should be by default helping the society and the ecosystem in which they're living. If we view society as an ecosystem or social setting as that, or economic setting, then they're basically dumping toxic waste constantly into the ecosystem being like, oh my God, why are things going badly? We just need to be like, beatings will continue until morale improves. Yeah, no, for sure. This is like my sociological background, but it some way conflicts with my current counseling situation because what I just said at the end there, we're critiquing society and saying, well, well, society must change. It's it's a societal problem, not an individual problem. But I'm actually working with individuals, and I'm like, well, how can we, I guess, cope with it? <laughs> And it is an individual problem because... I mean, it's both. What are you going to do? Like, you don't have the ultimate say in society. You're doing what you can. And you don't just say like, well, it's a societal problem. Go deal with it. I am about helping people where they're at with also a recognition of the social contexts they inhabit. But there's a political level above that that it takes so many people to change a sick society. How do you do that? Well, politics, I guess. Do you think now would be a relevant time to talk about the pie chart you sent me of like what determines positive outcomes for patients? Oh, and sure. How motivational interviewing. Well, I'm just thinking, I can't remember what the percentages were, but I think it was like 45% or something is determined by factors completely outside of the therapeutic context. So like almost the majority of the inputs for a person's recovery is not at all related to the actual therapy, according to that chart. But then motivational interviewing is something that helps people to change that context. I think, right? Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. One, two, three, four. There's four different variables that affect therapeutic outcomes. So 40% is the extra therapeutic events. So pretty much the person's life situation. And that's 40% of change, roughly. 50 percent of change is actually the therapeutic technique. One five. Yeah, 15. We actually like, like to think it's supposed to be way more than that. If you get the best technique of CBT, it's going to create the change. You, know? you alone, the therapist alone can fix everything. The therapist alone. The therapist alone who's really good at CBT will change everything. That's 15%. The other 15% is like a placebo. So if the client like if they believe it, it's helping them. Yeah. Yeah. If they have a high expectation that this is going to help me, then there's a placebo effect. So 15% of it is placebo. 15% of it is the technique. 
40% is the person's life situation. But there's another component here. And it's the one that motivational interviewing (laughs) actually focuses on. And that's the therapeutic relationship. So that's the quality of the relationship between the counselor and the client. How well supported they feel, how accepted they feel, how empathized with they feel, collaborated with. So that is 30%. That's a significant chunk of the pie. But everyone likes to kind of focus on therapeutic technique. Well, that's the thing that's easiest to control. Yeah, it's the easiest thing to control, but... What do you think about, like, court-mandated therapy, then? Like, they don't want to be there. (laughs) They're antagonistic, possibly. I think if it gets someone in the door, sure. Uh, Because a well-trained therapist maybe has a shot at building a quality therapeutic relationship with that person at the very least, whether they have any technique or any, you know, actual cognitive behavioral or other things they work on. If that person can just build a quality therapeutic relationship where they feel supported, hey, that's that's going to be a good chunk of potential change. But again, 40% is the person's environment. So this is all of the factors involved in change and driving human behavior. But again, we like to use the word, it's just laziness. That person didn't change because they were just uniquely bad and lazy. There's all these things under the hood. There's like, well, did the therapist have a, a quality therapeutic relationship with that person? Was the technique on? Did they expect that there's going to be good outcomes? And what else is going on in the individual's life? Are they impoverished? Are they overstressed in their work? Like, There's so many variables that are, are going on here. I think also funny that like just thinking about the fixation on technique, it, it seems very relevant to like any area because it's like situational factors are a huge thing. People will be like, well, you didn't do this right. But it's like, even if you did everything right, like I think it's a Picard quote from Star Trek, you can do everything right and still lose. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just that's life at times. Oh, of course. Yeah. Like I could be doing the technique spot on, perfect therapeutic relationship. The person has high expectations, but that 40%, you know, it has a lot of power in the situation. What's the next one we got there? I think it's anxiety. So we talked about anxiety. We talked about depression. I want to focus more on like what, what we're talking about right now, like like human motivation. Like what motivates someone to change? And that's that motivational interview we talked about before. And the therapeutic relationship is being a very important part of that. And what's the ingredients in the therapeutic relationship that create change? And if you look at the episode we did on self-determination theory, there's three ingredients there. There's autonomy, competence, relatedness. And so in that therapeutic relationship, you have to facilitate a sense of autonomy, meaning the person feels like they have freedom. They're not controlled by the situation. You're not telling them what to do. You're kind of building their sense of competence, like, what have you done before that's building your, your expectation that you can do it? Small wins that builds their sense of competence. And then the relatedness of do you have this unconditional positive regard? Are you showing up in a way that's accepting? So those ingredients are the three components underlying the therapeutic relationship that creates human motivation and intrinsic motivation. This is really the definition of intrinsic motivation, which is different than extrinsic, which is like, come to this job and I'll give you a paycheck. And this is all operating under the hood when we say this person is lazy. It's like looking at the car and saying, the car is bad because it won't run. It's a bad car. Imagine we project these things onto anything else. For some reason, humans are special, so we don't give it a mechanistic kind of perspective. But it's like, if we were to like, that TV is lazy. It won't turn on. My car is lazy. It's breaking down whenever it just takes breaks when I'm driving. I don't know why. It's like, there are reasons these things are happening. And we're only willing to see it in physical objects. But people, no, no excuse 
None whatsoever. That car likes to really take breaks when we're driving. <laughs> it doesn't like go on long distance. It's always forcing me to take breaks. I mean, it would make more sense if it was a horse, I guess. But there's, again, there's got to be some sort of reason going on there. I mean, temperament is still a thing. So I guess it still could be. I mean, laziness isn't entirely ruled out, but. Right. But like, if we look under the hood of human behavior, we find what I just said in the last five minutes. <laughs> there's intrinsic motivation, these ingredients. There's relationships with other people in their lives, not necessarily therapeutic relationships, but how are the person's relationships in their family and and social life not emotionally supportive in these ways that facilitate intrinsic motivation? Emotional maturity is a good episode if you wanted to reference some of that stuff. But we are more than just individual automatons with willpower and just going through life. Yeah. Like we were talking about with motivational interviewing, without the soil, the seed's not going to grow. And likewise, without having like the proper supports and outlets for stress and actual recreation, which is an episode we should probably do at some point, what recreation is. But without these things, you basically have a constant drag on your psyche that are like sapping your ability to function. You're barely keeping your head above water. And they're like, well, can't you swim but, like over there, like way over there? You're like, I can't, I can, I can barely swim. And you're asking me to do the backstroke. Like, what are you doing? Of course, I'm going to have problems here. Yeah. Yeah. And so beyond just like being burned out, there may actually be a physical health issue. Like some people, they may just be operating really slow because they have a thyroid issue. You know, like there's like actual physical health conditions that may be at play or chronic pain issues, sleep problems, like lots of ways these things can express themselves. Huge, huge nutritional deficits. We like yeah. to, again, like I think you can just white knuckle your way through these things, but nutrition is one of those longer term things where like you'll have stores that take time to be replenished. So you can have one nutritional meal, but it doesn't mean that you have it all immediately available. And so when you don't have, say, proper nutrition, your body's pulling these things from the areas to function. If it needs it to live and it's choosing between living and your bones being strong, it's going to choose living first. So like over time, without getting enough of the nutrients you need, you're constantly weakening yourself in the long haul. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Psychologically speaking as well. Yeah. So not getting your physical needs met and not even realizing it. Like some people don't even realize it. They're like, I didn't realize that. I would just wasn't even eating for a few hours and they're getting insulin spikes, but they don't know what's going on. Again, look under the hood. Why is your car deciding to be lazy and take breaks? <laughs> <laughs> it's also like fitness too. I think it's really easy when you're just subsisting, like you're just subsistence level, like you have no time to do anything. Actually getting like a good night's sleep, eating some decent food and exercising night and day, you'll feel like a million bucks and you'll be like, why did I ever not do this? And it's always a kind of lesson I continually relearn myself where it's like why did I stop working out like I was like oh I don't need to do that and then you start feeling worse and worse but it's slow and so eventually when you start working out again you're like why did I ever stop yeah yeah and so it's looking at all of the other variables are your psychological needs met meaning like before you decided to think you're depressed what was that quote again look at the people around you before you get diagnosed with depression make sure you're not surrounded by jerks I think he says assholes but <laughs> I love it and before you decide to call yourself lazy look at your physical needs. Like, are you sleeping enough even? And if you need nine hours, well, I guess you just need nine hours and that's okay. I mean, the word we're dancing around here is self-care, which is often kind of nebulous these days. It's just like, yeah, self-care, make sure you do your self-care. And it's like, okay, so what are we talking about exactly here? It's basically everything we just mentioned. Social needs, recreational needs, like alone time, sleep, food, exercise, the things that we all know we quote unquote should be doing. But I think 
a lot of these things I felt like I didn't really understand some of the importance of them until later when it's like, Oh, eating this thing gets you this. Oh. So like, instead of being like, yeah, vegetables are good for you. It's like, if you don't have this, it ends up pulling away from your bones as I keep pulling that reference for whatever reason. But a lot of these things are just kind of like, yeah, they're good. And we don't feel like doing them because they seem like just like this naggy thing we should be doing, but I don't want to do. But if we paint it out, like you can do the things you want to do better when you have these things there. It allows you to like exercise your willpower better and focus better at the time of work. So you can get your work done and you can get back to things you want to do sooner, presuming that you can do it milestone based. And that's part of motivational interviewing too. It's like the person's like, I want to start eating vegetables. And I'll be like, yeah, you should eat the vegetables. They're healthy. Rather, I would say something like if you were to be able to eat the vegetables, what would that do for you? What would that look like? Why do you want to eat vegetables? Like, why would you want to eat vegetables? Like, I would even say that sometimes in a, in a kind of that way too. Like, you want to eat vegetables? Why would you want to do that? And now they're like, well, because, you know, because they're good for you. So, and I'll, I'll literally sometimes have this type of, so they're good for you. So what? And then like, well, okay, good point. Well, I guess it would give me more energy. And then so they're, now they're coming up with real reasons why they would want to eat the vegetables rather than because they're good. Yeah, because they're good. While it is true, it's also kind of why. Yeah, it's, why are they good? But it's like a sapping of motivation because you're like, it's good. And then it becomes like a, a shooting on yourself kind of situation where you're like, it's good. So I should. And if, if I don't, then I'm not good enough. Yeah, then I'm bad. And that's like putting another brick in your backpack of shame. So when someone shows up and they're like, I know I should be doing this thing, but I can't do it. I'm like, well, why would you want to do it in the first place? And so I get them down to a why. And as Viktor Frankl says, if you have a why, you figure out any how. He's quoting Nietzsche, by the way. Yeah, I was going to say it's both of them I attributed to. If you want to be pedantic, I knew you would. Well, uh, actually, push my glasses up on my nose. <laughs> well, actually, it was it was a quote by Nietzsche. <laughs> I actually don't like I I only know that because I looked it up once being like, wait, is that Nietzsche or is that Frankel? Because I think I've heard both attributes. I know, I know. But if you have a why, you can figure out a how. And so maybe this laziness that you you might be berating yourself with is actually a lack of purpose. And so that is another thing. Laziness might not be the problem. Maybe it's finding your why, finding like a purposeful, meaningful activity that you can actually enjoy and develop a passion around over time. Yeah, I think people struggle with that, though, because I think I agree with Cal Newport and what's it called? So good can't ignore you where he talks about passion is actually rare like people think they're passionate about something but it's like it's a passing interest and that's fair enough i'm not criticizing people for having that but a passion is something you're willing to like go out of your way to continue to develop something that you're just so fixated on that you just pay extra just to get the time to do that you just sacrifice sleep to do this thing and i'm not talking and this is again we're not going into internalized capitalism you can do this with anything like baking for instance would be fine it's intrinsically motivated not because you're getting paid and you have to do the work right and i think a lot of people though find right now especially those more veering towards depression might think, well, I don't have anything like that's worth living for. I'm just kind of useless. But I think if you're thinking that I think a lot of the time, just like in sales, which is a weird connection to make, but when you're thinking about stuff for myself, do it for myself. That's when you start getting these frustrated ideas. And the easiest way to get around that is how can I help somebody around me? What would somebody near me appreciate that I can make? Like I make cold brew coffee and I've just been giving it out willy nilly here because it's something I can do. It's, it's very cheap for me to do. And other people don't have the resources or know-how. So I'll just make it and give it away and they seem to enjoy it. So you can be of service to other people. Otherwise, you're just being selfish. And that right 
shamefully makes us feel bad because we're a communal species. Even in our Western individualized culture, it's still better to help those around you. Yeah, and this is kind of the, there's a hierarchy of usefulness I like to lay out. Rather than just saying someone, you should be useful to other people to cure your purpose problem. Because a lot of people will show up and their problems are the exact opposite, where they're like self-sacrificingly useful to everyone around. That's like a super common thing, like just self-sacrifice, lack of self-care. So I, what I say is the hierarchy of usefulness is be useful to yourself so that you can be useful to those close to you so that you can then be useful to society at large. And there's this kind of start being useful to yourself first. And let's say you are, you're like, I am, I'm going to the gym twice a day. I eat the best foods. Okay. Well then maybe that's (laughs) too much focus on yourself and what you said before. Focus on how you can connect to someone else and use your skills and abilities to help others. I mean, that's the 12th step of, I guess, 12 step programs is the giving back. And that's what really facilitates this sense of purpose. Yeah. I guess I was just thinking like people who have anhedonia, which is the lack of pleasure that comes from depression, they might not be able to find these things because they don't find anything to be very rewarding. And so if that's the case, actually the way when I've been depressed in the past, I don't know if it was clinical or not, but definitely depression on some level. And to me, I was like, okay, nothing is enjoyable. Doing anything is equally just blah. I don't have any real reaction to any of it. And this is easier said than done. It took a lot of practice and effort to get there. But like since nothing is enjoyable, I might as well do the things that are normally not enjoyable because they're the things that are going to get me out of the situation. Because for me, it was situational. So I was like, okay, watching TV isn't enjoyable. Neither is writing an article. I might as well choose to at least start the article because then I may be getting more of a chance of getting a lottery ticket to get out of the situation possibly. Right. I love how it's just like, it's all bad. I might as well do the thing that's productive. (laughs) I might as well do the thing that's going to help me, yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. I don't know if it's useful for some people. Some people will think it's like a pipe dream, and that's fine. You don't have to. If it doesn't help you, then toss it away. But it's something that helped me because I'm like, if we're just going to be wasting time, time's passing regardless. Might as well do the thing that will give me a modest chance of moving forward. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. If it's useful for you, take it. Yeah. Do you have anything else to add about laziness? I do have another category. Oh. And this is a very common one that is, I guess the diagnosis is way more prevalent now, but ADHD is often, you know, people will say this person's just lazy. They don't want to focus and do the work. This person has like kind of a ADHD situation where they really can't focus. So there's a neurodiversity component to it that makes it difficult. What are your thoughts? For that? Yeah. I think there needs to be some accessibility stuff. And I think the problem with that is that right now when applying to jobs, they have this, when I studied in my minors, human resource management, it was illegal to ask about anything to do with your gender, your sexual orientation, your religion, and your disabilities. None of these were allowed to be asked about because you might be discriminated against. And now it's like standard practice to ask about these things. And I'm just like, what? It just feels so wrong because I understand that the stated reason is that you want to help the people with those disabilities and such or whatever alternative things they have. But the thing is, you have no idea whether it's going to be used for you or against you. And so even now, like even if there is something that'll benefit me, I will just abstain from any reaction because I don't want them to possibly penalize me for having it or for not having it. So it's just kind of catch-22. Yeah. I'm not sure how that would work in the job market. That's an interesting HR practice that you brought up there. The way I see it often used is in education. Like students do have accommodations for things like this. Yeah, that's perfectly fine. I think that's that's how it should be, even in the workplace, frankly. Because like these people... They're different. They're not disabled. They have a different approach to things and they're able to have a different perspective. Hence the word neurodiversity, which often applies to autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, 
maybe some other things. Yeah. And I think expecting them to act and present as neurotypical, I think that's the word, neurotypical people present is a mistake. You have to maximize their actual potential, what they actually would be very suited for. And that, I think a lot of corporations are just giant bureaucracies. They're really not adaptive to these kind of situations. And so they aren't able to do that. The other thing I thought about is like, again, in industry is the whole people just don't want to work. We have to talk about that because like that's to do with laziness as well, right? For a similar reason. Elon Musk was saying something like that, like, oh, working from home is is making people think that they don't need to work anymore. Yeah, all that free money we're just giving out. And it's like, okay, to the corporations, I agree. The people work from home, I think, again, milestones should be fine. Did they get the thing done to the satisfaction you needed to get it done? Then shut up and leave them alone. Let them be happy. The happier they are, the more productive they'll be, the better work they'll do, and the more they will stay at your actual workplace. But I think a lot of time also is like that other thing I sent you where it was like an HR question being like, these people keep leaving their job. Why is that? What is the most likely reason for them to leave their job? And they chose that it was like the pay wasn't sufficient. And then the system was like, no, that's wrong. Most people don't leave their job because of pay. And I think that might be outdated research. The research in the past did say that people most likely leave their jobs because of bad managers, which yeah, because you don't want to be screamed at, micromanaged or treated like you're useless. So people leave because of fighting with the person that's lording over them. However, today it's probably a combination of that and not being paid enough because you can't make ends meet or new hires that have you've been there for three, four years and a new hire comes along and gets paid more than you do, even with a raise every year, that's wrong. That's broken. And that company deserves to go under capitalism. It's like the whole thing I've talked about many times is like, I'm sick of socialism for corporations and capitalism for individuals. If you're an individual failing, well, go screw yourself. But if you're a big corporation failing, oh, well, here's some money to make up for the fact that you mismanage your shit and you can't survive in the system. Or like people talk about minimum wage where they're like, oh yeah, well, like minimum wage can't go up. We've already got enough inflation. It's like the cost of everything has gone up. How do you expect them to live for one? And two, if the cost of everything has gone up, why would wages not go up with it? It's just the whole thing is dumb. <laughs> it just frustrates me to no end. Yes, I can, I can see that very clearly. And if you like Phil's rant, go check out the episode on internalized capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do that. It's just, uh, it's a through line here. If you're listening this far, then you probably already know like our stances, at least mine. And mine is so mysterious. He's more nebulous as a counselor. They have to be a little more careful. Yeah, a little more careful here. Well, and, and really, it's just my temperament in general as well. I'm not like trying to hide anything. I'm not like sitting here like, I'm actually a closeted socialist. You know, I'm... <laughs> I mean, I am, I guess, a socialist. It depends on how we define that word. Again, like some people think it means like full on far top left authoritarian communist, which it's not. It's like, yeah, we want to have like health care for everybody. And we want everybody to do. I mean, obviously, from what I'm saying, we want everybody to do fairly well. And we want to be able to capitalize on like maybe that's the wrong choice of words, but to enjoy the benefits that everyone has and allow them to express those and do well and have everyone enjoy what everyone can do. Though I wouldn't go so far as to say like nobody should get, like everyone should get the same rewards. That I think is where I would probably stop it. But like, I think there should be caps on the amount that a CEO can make over what the average worker makes, for example. Yeah. The average worker who's called lazy for not working hard enough and making their 150 sales calls per day when trying to work with clients and fulfill orders, you know, oh, you're lazy, I mean, like, you didn't do the sales let's calls. Let's compare a fast food worker who's working on their feet beside hot things there's also or like a kitchen worker in any restaurant I guess where it's extremely hot you're just sweating all day you're like doing this grueling work beside food that you can't eat and trying to make it look great and have it put out at the right time and people are yelling at you and there's a lot of stress for like 12 hour shifts or more some of these people and like that makes minimum wage a lot of the time is that 
less work than a CEO does, I would say it's more work because a CEO has to make more mental decisions. You have to have more capability, I guess, and maybe handle the stress of being blamed. But maybe not a CEO, let's say like an accountant, a white collar worker or somebody. Like I would say on average, the amount of actual labor you're doing is a lot more abstracted. Yes, it is so stressful. It is still work. But I wouldn't say like that somebody in a fast food situation deserves no respect and shouldn't be paid a living wage. Right, exactly. Though it depends on the type of accountant. If you're talking about public accounting, yeah, they're they're ground to the... Uh, yeah, it depends on, I guess there are certain firms. Usually they're the giant firms that you want to cut your teeth in to get like into the industry. And then you leave to get something that's more casual. But those places, I really don't like them because they're like, yeah, let's just grind the shit out of you until like you hate your life and you can't have anything outside of this job. And it's not even just not in season. season. Yeah, it's, it's a year round, it seems for them. Public accounting and working in a kitchen are both grueling, but are they less worthy of making a living wage compared to the upper management who kind of sits back and doles out deals? And I mean, the accountant's already making similar wages to those people probably. But yeah, I, I meant more just comparing like somebody who's doing a very physically demanding and mentally because like you're trying to like deal with all the stress and people yelling at you. That stress, that deserves more than just, you can't even afford rent these days in some cities. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know. We're kind of cycling around just kicking in the can at the moment. We're just kicking, kicking the can. Playing hacky sack. It's kind of a mix of politics overlapping with laziness concept when really it's an overused word. It's main takeaway. It's overused. Open up the hood. Look what's going on underneath. I would say it's probably more likely to be leveled by a conservative than it is from a progressive because progressives are more likely to see that, okay, usually I think the difference for them, I think conservatives usually place all the onus on individuals, whereas as progressives and left-leaning people tend to place a lot more on the system. I'm more of an overlap for both. It's a Venn diagram, but I'd say the system obviously frames everything that's happening because how can you escape it? It's inescapable, basically. Yes, and, and individual counseling is kind of just like making the best of a bad yeah. situation sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what else can you do? So laziness, it's more than just somebody choosing not to work. There are probably some lazy people out there. They're probably the minority. The people that are labeled lazy likely have a lot more going on and we should be more sympathetic. That is the takeaway here. Big takeaway. Great. Thanks for tuning in and we hope to see you again next time. And please share us with your friends and leave a rating. Thanks and bye. All right. Take care. Yeah, they're, they're not socks. They're just something you wear on your feet for when you're wearing shoes. They're just, you know, you can't see them, so they're not socks anymore.